to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Gemma Isrop, who is currently a senior software engineer, speaker, and author of the book Ruby Garbage Collection in under two hours. Gemma joins us today from Seattle, Washington, in the United States. Gemma Israf, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me on. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this since you invited me on. I think the things that come to mind as, as perhaps more obvious are well-documented and well-tested, but reflecting on it even more, I was thinking that maintainable software is something that it's really, that is software that's really not dependent on any one person or any small group of people, that kind of teams can change or people can come on and off it and it still continues to function well. I think to me, that's a sign of really maintainable software. In the teams that you've been a part of, have you ever been, maybe if you just take a step back and you think about your career arc so far, what's been like kind of like a rough ratio of the number of times you've joined a project that already existed, a software project that's already existed versus being there day one and getting to kind of help set out with that fresh blank canvas? I think definitely much more so I've been joining things that already existed, at least in some way. Probably 60 or 70% of the work I've done has been that versus blank canvas or a team looking to start something that has zero lines of code or relatively few lines of code. When you're working on in software projects, what does your role tend to be nowadays? Like what sort of, why would a team bring you in and what's your kind of like your unique like skill set that you're able to kind of offer? I would say my project I'm working on right now doesn't fall exactly into this category, but other than that, I would say mostly I specialize in performance or optimizing some part of a code base. And so I think that's why it's a lot less greenfielding project I'm working on right now or, or have been working on for the past year or so was much more greenfieldy. Interesting. And so when you come into those projects and you're maybe sort of get assigned, have those those environments already, someone already kind of mapped out, like here's the things that we're kind of concerned about and things that seem to be slowing down our, let's say, web request cycles or some backend processing time, making some assumptions here about knowing that you've been working on Shopify for a while when there's like a lot of throughput there. And are there usually identified things or do you often find yourself in the role of going out and finding the slow things and then trying to troubleshoot and figure out ways to optimize them? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't think it's, I mean, I know it's not the common experience at Shopify. I actually, in my two years at Shopify, have worked on nothing proprietary, so nothing to do with Shopify specific code. In my time there, I've been mostly working on Ruby itself, which I think we can definitely talk about from the maintainable perspective. But prior to that, usually it was something along the lines of this thing is slow, go figure out why and how to make it better. So I guess the, that's not to say there isn't like research involved in it or, or where I guess maintenance also I think is pretty critical, right? Is like how easy is it to just jump into this and figure out what's going on and figure out what part is slow and how to speed it up. There's a quite a bit of a learning curve on some apps and some are definitely easier to, to go into. Do you often use the metaphor technical debt in your day-to-day work? Not in the past year or so. I think at my previous company, we talked about it, but mostly not on the app I was working on. I think 
Insofar as I've heard the phrase technical debt used to date, and I think I use it myself, it's much more of stuff that's been around for a while that you intend to fix or, or should fix or something like that. I think a lot of the times when I'm working on something, it's the thing that needs to be fixed or improved in some way. So maybe at one point was the technical debt, but I don't think I'm often building stuff that's accruing a lot of technical debt because I'm usually not in something that's like shipping in two weeks and needs to go really fast and be done in a really optimal way or something like that. You know, I'm curious about your work specifically within the Ruby code base. So is that diving down into the C-level part of Ruby and working in C itself? Yeah, so the Ruby implementation, I think most of us use, is written mostly in C. And what I've been working on over the past year, I think, is interesting. Because in a way, I guess it's greenfieldy, but in a way, it's also not. My team at Shopify rewrote the Ruby parser, so wrote a new Ruby parser. And then the thing I've been really focused on is writing a compiler or the part of the compiler to plug in that new parsed output into the existing compiler. So it's a little greenfieldy in that we're writing new, totally new stuff, right? I'm not editing other people's code, but I need it to plug in eventually to what already exists, and I need it to fit certain patterns that already exist. So I guess it's a, it's a pretty interesting combination of the two. And out of curiosity, is this something that Shopify needs for their own environment primarily? And so that was a motivation or is it just there was some issues and maybe hit some limitations with the existing parser that there needed to be like, we should rewrite this in a new or from a fresh perspective or is there trying to optimize on some very specific aspect that just it wasn't going to be fixable within the existing parser? Yeah, a bit of everything. The ecosystem prior to this parser is super fractured in terms of which parsers it used. So then when Ruby introduced new syntax or change. First of all, they all had subtle bugs, all the different parsers, right? Because keeping parsers are consistent or is a really hard problem. But also then when new syntax was introduced to Ruby, inevitably certain tools, specifically ones that Shopify used, would lag behind inevitably in a, in a way that's really hard to control. And also, uh, so there were a few kind of concrete reasons for it, but one that I that is interesting is that the existing parser actually wasn't really maintainable. And I think actually one of the definitions of not maintainable, besides the code is hard to read and reason about, was that only one or two people have really worked on it substantially and really know what's going on there, which is kind of what I was saying at the top of the episode here around if code is really dependent on a small group of people, I think that's not maintainable by some definition. That's interesting. I was thinking about one of the things I often like to talk with guests about is, you know, when you make that decision of rewrite versus refactor, and there are oftentimes I'm on the side of like, don't rewrite an application unless like it's like one of the last resorts. And I'm assuming that that was something that's sussed out you know, in this kind of decision to build a new parser is the idea that maybe that it will eventually replace the existing parser or that they'll kind of co like coexist and teams can choose which parser they're using. And maybe also for guests, just to help us understand anyone listening to me, like, well, what's the difference between the language and the parser? Is it like, I know that we've got Ruby, we got JRuby, so you can run it within a Java thing. Is that a parser or is it something a little bit more lower level than that? Uh, a parser is the thing that reads your code and turns it into something that the implementation can work with. 
so it turns it into like a, basically a tree structure that describes the code. So you could think at a very high level, if you had some class, there's maybe like a big class node in your tree and then some stuff like a method definition as a child node of that. That's what the parser is doing. It's reading your code and making this tree structure. It's a great question about JRuby, different types of Ruby here, right? They should all be able to use the same parser, but historically they haven't been, which is one of the things that this new parser is trying to solve. This new parser is now used by JRuby, going to be used by TruffleRuby, Ruby by C Ruby or, or the Ruby we might think of when we just say Ruby. Really all of these, which is something that, that should be a lot better. In terms of the question of why rewrite and not refactor, there were some limitations in the design of the prior parser. I think the one that comes top of mind and perhaps is the easiest to understand and reason about is that its design didn't allow for any error tolerance. So if you can imagine you, I don't know, pull open in VS Code a huge Ruby file and you're working in the middle and you're like creating a few different errors and maybe you say like, okay, I'm going to set my def block first and then start filling things in. It can't see one error and see another error at the same time. It's going to stop right at the first error and fully stop parsing. There's no tolerance or no ability to see past that. And that was integral to the design, which I think to me was one of the biggest things that forced a rewrite, right? Because you couldn't, once you're redoing the design, you you are rewriting. And if you need a feature that isn't supported by that design, it becomes a rewrite. How many people have been working on that type of project? Is that a like a pretty decent sized team? And, is, and how many people outside of say the Shopify environment are helping contribute to that? It's a pretty small team. Kevin Newton on my team has been leading the charge. I've been working on it. A few other members of our team at Shopify, uh, Aaron Patterson's been working a bunch on it. Matt Valentine House has been working on it. Peter Zhu just jumped on it. I would say most of the year it was about two, two and a half people within Shopify. And then there are definitely folks at GitHub who have collaborated quite a bit and some other folks from other Ruby implementations. So from JRuby or Truffle Ruby who have also chimed in. And is this work that you're doing going to make it easy, seemingly easier for the language to evolve as capabilities quicker at a, in the future? Or is it just kind of like we needed to kind of optimize what we're already trying to accomplish within Ruby and we just needed something that we could help contribute to and this is make it something we can contribute to where we didn't feel like we could do it as much with the, the prior implementation. Both. Yeah. So it should, any new features or new language features should be really easy. One that's coming to Ruby 3, 4 is the it keyword. So instead of underscore one, you can use it. But the main driver, I think the main driver from a language perspective, the thing that started causing things to lag behind was when Ruby introduced pattern matching. It was just a whole new set of syntax that every parser implementation all of a sudden had to support. This should make it a lot more straightforward. Not only I think is the parser better written, but also it's just central right there's just one place that should need to change hey folks it's me robbie i want you to take a moment and close your eyes now picture your code and your applications as a symphony now to keep that symphony playing smoothly you need an orchestra of tools that's where our podcast sponsor, AppSignal, takes center stage. They combine the elegance of error tracking, the precision of performance monitoring, and the harmony of logging into one symphonic suite. Whether you're composing with Ruby, jamming with Elixir, orchestrating with Node.js, or harmonizing with Python, or maybe even a little bit of 
flourish of JavaScript, AppSignal's got the sheet music for you. And here's the crescendo. Plans start at just $23 US a month. That's gotta be music to your budget's ears. Plus they're certified ISO 27001 and they dance the GDPR and HIPAA compliance beats. So don't miss a beat, my friends. Head on over to appsignal.com and tell them that your good friend Robbie from Maintainable sent you. Now, open your eyes and let the symphony of smooth coding begin. Let's get back to our show. When you think about maintainability of this type of software that you're working on, are you able to leverage much in the, in the sense of test frameworks, things like that? And is that something you're able to do? Because I know that earlier on in my Ruby journey, you know, going back many years ago, 20 years ago almost, but working with people maybe 16, 17 years ago that were working on, the, what was it called? Rubinius? I don't know if you've ever heard of Rubinius. It was like a Ruby within Ruby thing. I, my brain hurt every time my colleague would try to explain it to me. I'm like, wait, you're trying to recreate Ruby in Ruby? Uh, wait, what are you doing? But there was also, there was like a Ruby testing project that was happening so that you could like, run your, you know, your test framework against all these different implementations of Ruby and know that, it, you know, they were all kind of Ruby speckers, something like that. Is there something like that with what you're doing or is that kind of, how does that, how is it working on this type of work different than say when you're working within Ruby, Ruby on Rails itself? with your your development process yeah it's interesting because so the the output of this parser is a tree that's kind of unique to the parser so we're not testing it against anything existing which is interesting from a testing perspective but what we decided to build was this almost snapshot system where as we were working on the parser we basically had a bunch of what we called fixture files that were just snippets of code and we would run them against the parser and then save the parse tree. And if a code change changed the parse tree, you would have to merge that as part of your code change and be like, this is the reason this introduced a new node or something like that, which I, I think made it pretty easy and, and still makes it pretty easy to reason about changes, right? If you introduce a new flag on a node or a new field on a node, you can see it and see how it behaves on all of these examples. That's for the parser itself. And then the compile side, which is actually running the code, that's super easy to test because we can run Ruby's existing test suite, right? We can say, hey, these tests should be passing already. Let's run them all with this new compiler and, and ensure they are still passing. And is this uh, the new parser something that Shopify is already able to use in production or is this still a little ways away from that? Yeah, no, it's um, available as a gem and anyone can use it. You can compile your code with it, but it's not 100% working in Ruby 3.3. So it's kind of marked as experimental and hoping to ship as the default compiler in Ruby 3.4 next year. That would be, what, Christmas time next year? Christmas time next year, yeah. 11 <laughs> months little... away or so, 11 and a half. So at the time of this recording, you know, you're just about to make a big work transition, which will probably happen before this episode is actually edited and, and gets aired. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you'll be doing in this new role and what kind of led to that? I'm going to be leaving Shopify and I'll be working at a company called Anthropic, which is an AI company uh, specifically focused on safety, safety research and, and building out safe AI products. What led to the change? I think I have been interested in AI, honestly, since ChatGPT and since I started to see it firsthand. I'm definitely a bit of an experiential learner. And so seeing it and seeing how I could use it really, really opened my eyes to the potential of AI. And I, I think there's, the more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And so a big part of the reason I'm joining Anthropic is, is to keep learning down that direction. Also, because I, I think the continued growth of AI is inevitable at this point. And, and given that, safety does seem like a really huge priority. 
Uh, and so wanted to be part of working on that solution as well. Nice. Um, are they working in similar technology stacks and such, or is it kind of going to be a whole new environment or a bit of both? going to be a, a whole new environment. I think most of their code is in Python, which I've never professionally worked in. So that'll be a big change for me. What's your plans for being involved in the Ruby community going forward? Or are we just going to like lose you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still figuring it out. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out, I'll know exactly what that is. I think it's probably a bit harder to motivate traveling for conferences in Ruby if I'm not working in Ruby. I think something that's really top of mind is the women non-binary Ruby group I co-founded with Emily Samp and what a good role for me is there going forward. I think I'm really proud of the work we've done there and I want to continue to be involved in it in some capacity, but I think there's a large thing that makes the work a little easier is that I'm a part of the community. And I think if I were, when I'm not a part of the community, keeping up with the community will be a whole new task. And so, yeah, still trying to think through that and figure out what it means. Yeah, and it's interesting just thinking when I hear people that are become known in a community and they're like, I'm going to go off and experiment with this other thing now. And we're like, oh, what am I doing? Should I be wandering away from the Ruby Ruby on Rails community myself. Um, bigger conversation for another time. But um, what are some tips you can offer to our audience on how to have a well-maintained running schedule, regardless of the weather? We're And for some context for the audience, right before we hit record, Gemma was mentioning that how much she enjoys running in the rain. And I was like, I do too. And we're maybe not, not everybody understands why that's so awesome. So I think the hardest part of running in the rain is starting by far. I think it's the hardest thing to do is it's raining and you walk outside and you're like, I wasn't wet and now I'm starting to get wet and this is unpleasant. But once you're doing it, it is so much fun because there's next to no one else out. The wet is actually kind of nice because you're sweating and it's a nice like cooling factor. And it's just like, yeah, blissfully quiet and kind of smoggy and you can get lost in your thoughts running in the rain almost there's a part of running in the rain that to me feels like swimming in a pool which is you kind of like are just in your own little world yeah so I I try to still run and exercise and things I also occasionally do races and I think there's a big part to me about like a race isn't going to get canceled if it's raining so why are you canceling training if it's raining what are your thoughts when I first started running in the rain, it took me a couple times. This is many years ago, and I was like, but I remember one morning, because like, I run in the morning pretty early. So it's usually not even that light out when I start my run. It's like I might leave my house around 6, 6.30 sometimes to go for a run. And so, so usually I get the part, I get to see a sun, sunrise or something, but in the rain, it's just cloudy and it stays dark until I get back. But there's something about kind of running around, like especially by some parks that I, I live not too far from here in Portland, Oregon, and it's... I don't know, there's just something, Portland, you know, you live up in Seattle, it's 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 wet, damp here all the time anyway, so I think the dampness is not necessarily a concern, but it's just like, there's something about, there's us people on some of the trails I normally go to, and some of the sidewalks and areas I'm running. I'm a little more nervous about running and getting hit by a car, because they might not notice me as much, I want to make sure I'm very visible, but still, because I know that their visibility is not as good. When I cross some of the, the, the few little major streets that I do need to cross to get to the parks that I want to run to, but... So there's like a little bit of a heightened danger in someone, which is kind of fun, I guess, but I mean, not kind of don't hit me, don't hit me. Uh, but beyond that, it's just, there's a certain level of, yeah, getting rained on. I, I wear glasses though. And so that's a minor inconvenience with the rain. Cause it's kind of wiping my glasses and I'm like, I gotta wear a hat to kind of cover my glasses more. Otherwise I like when it's cold in the winter, I usually like to wear a beanie or something like, but, it's, and if it's really cold and rainy, then I'll have a 
hat with a beanie over it so I can keep my ears warm. It's a, it's a whole thing. But it all comes down to equipment as well. I have different running shoes that are got like Gore-Tex and rain appropriate shoes. And that definitely helps because like I guess the one thing I don't like when I run is like if I'm running like I'm out for 45, 50 minutes on a run and then I'm like three blocks away from home and that's when I land in the puddle and that's when my foot gets drenched. It's like it always seems to be in the last like the end of the run that that happens, which is annoying. But it, it is that first I don't want to say several blocks. It's like, okay, let's do this. We can do this. We can do this. And we get out there and we do it. I also think somewhere along the way we forgot that we're waterproof. I don't know. I, <laughs> most people really don't like the rain. And it's like, you know, like <laughs> you shower every day. It's like not that different. You're just getting wet and it's yeah. fine. And then you get dry afterwards. All right. Let's back to our show. All right. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, anyways, um, so you're making this big career shift over to Anthropic. I'll include links to them in the show notes. And so safety, I'm curious, have you been able to leverage much AI in your coding work? I do use it really often. I actually, it's inter- it's interesting on the maintainable question. So the Ruby code base, which I work in, has some code that is older than I am and definitely some code that's a little dated or stylistically doesn't make sense to me or things like that. And I'll often just copy paste it into a tool and be like what's going on here can you explain this to me what is this tool what any questions about it and I would say definitely doesn't work 100% of the time but to me when it works is so much better and more efficient than Stack Overflow um, or things like that especially for like not well documented code and especially for old code I found it to be really helpful I think I use it very often have you been playing much with the copilot or anything as well in your editor yeah, Copilot is interesting. I think to me, as far as I've worked with it, Copilot, so I write mostly C at the moment. Copilot introduces another step to problem solving that is not always obviously better for me, which is now interpreting some more code, right? So so usually when you're writing code, Copilot I think is best for like greenfielding or writing a new snippet or something like that. You're usually like, okay, I have this thing I want to do. Let me think about how to do it and then write it. And then if it doesn't work, does work, I'm going to test it and figure out why it did or didn't or or whatever happened there. With Copilot, I think what happens to a certain extent is you have this thing you're thinking about, Copilot then implements it or implements some large part of it. You've now introduced a step, which is you have to check Copilot's code, like read through the code Copilot wrote and check if it is doing what you wanted it to. Make sure you fully understand that because there could be some case where it's not or, or is or something like that. Adjust if necessary, add more if necessary, and then go through the whole test process. And you're now almost just working with someone else's code than with your own thing, which for me, I'm so I'm less comfortable in C than Ruby by far. And for me in C specifically is harder to reason with because it's not like I can read the code and be like 100% I understand what's happening in every case here. Whereas Ruby code, I feel like for the most part I can read and, and understand in that way. We'll be back with our interview, Gemma, in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone out there that you work with, that you know, or maybe you used to work with, or you've heard about, that you think would make a great guest on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with the Y at maintainable.fm and pitch, pitch your person. And now, let's get back to our interview with Gemma Isroff. Now 
No, that resonates with me as well. And I haven't done any C code at all really long time. But like as far as like using Copilot specifically in some kind of day-to-day things, I'm like, all right, let me experiment with this little bit. And it's like usually it's like this afterthought. GitHub was nice enough to give me like a Copilot license for free because of my my Z-Shell project and I'm just as a kind of an early tester and stuff like that. I didn't really end up playing with it that much. But but a couple months ago I was working on a project actually for the podcast actually is web app that kind of powers the website that we're posting it on and I was trying to figure out how to do this thing and I kept like searching in Google and I was like because it involved some stuff outside of the code base that was going to be more on like dealing with some stuff in AWS and I remember thinking like how can I make this work and then I was like you know what I had this one moment I'm like what if I just ask Copilot this like I'm trying to like and so it took me a little bit to kind of craft the right prompt to kind of get it to kind of like understand what what get it out of my head with the problem I was trying to solve, but then it gave me some ideas. Uh, it didn't work the first few times, but it definitely helped me kind of narrow it down and kind of go down this path. I'm like, oh, this... So I was able to sort it out in like a couple hours where I occasionally would drop back, back into the problem every couple of weeks and be like, I'm going to see if I can figure it out today. Like I had an idea. And then it was like that that day that I decided to talk to Copilot was the day that I f- eventually figured it out. But it took me working with that versus, you know, relying on Googling and browsing Stack Overflow. And so like that's that's been an interesting shift for me. But then I hear from my engineers on our team and they're like, I haven't really found a good use case for this yet. And I'm like, we've kind of, we're all kind of trying to figure this out for ourselves in some ways. I've really enjoyed using it for scripts and like just a little script or like working with some data or like give me a bad script to do this, like that kind of thing. I also love it for, I think specifically where it's not like this is, I'm going to ship this code or it needs to be really pretty or I need to understand every part of it. It's just like, hey, I want to scrape this data or do this thing with this data, like help me get started. I think it's incredible for that. Like it's interesting because a year ago I was speaking with guests and we we're kind of like, I don't really know what we're going to, what this AI stuff's going to look like and it's how it's going to pan out. But it definitely, conversations definitely shifted a lot in over the last year. I think I've also seen really good use cases for it in my non-technical life, which to me is, I think, the biggest indication that its growth seems pretty unbounded and and inevitable is that I can easily use it for other things going on that have nothing to do with my professional life and like share it with friends or have them share it with me or things like that, which I think is also really important. Something I wanted to kind of circle back to, you know, you were talking about working in the parser and working in, you know, in CRuby and stuff like that. I'm curious, was that something that you intentionally decided you want to go seek out and work on or did you find your, like, what was the story that led to you kind of going down that path? And maybe I'm making an assumption that maybe you came from more of a web development origin and I, I don't actually know the answer to that. So maybe you can talk a little bit like, how did you find yourself? Did you raise your hand at one point and be like, I'd like to figure that out? Or were you already kind of doing that kind of stuff and finding your, your place in all of that? Yeah, so I joined Shopify on a Ruby-specific team that was working on Ruby. Um, once I was doing that, so I spent a lot of, not 2023, but 2022, working on a different project within the C Ruby code base. And then since Ruby releases at the end of the year, we kind of have a nice calendar-aligned cycle of changing what we're working on or reevaluating what we're working on. And like I said, Kevin was driving the parser project, and it seemed like they, we wanted to staff it with one other person. And so I thought that would be a really interesting opportunity and has to be on it yeah and so that was how that side of it went but once I was already on the team that was working on Ruby interesting do you I was listening to your appearance on I think it was the code with the Jason podcast from a number of years back I think you had mentioned made a reference to a maybe called the recurse or something could you tell us a little bit about that 
always happy to talk about that. After I left the company I was at before Shopify, I went for three months to the Recurse Center. Not super obvious to describe because I don't know another place quite like it. But I think the way that resonates the most with me is if you think of like an artist retreat or a writer's retreat where it's just people who work in this realm, not necessarily doing the same thing, um, but they're just coming together to focus on working on that. It's like that, but for programming. So it's definitely for a specific learning style because there's absolutely no accountability. No one's checking in on you. No one actually cares if you're practically coming especially when it was remote coming and doing the things or not but you can just there are a bunch of other people also there also trying to learn also interested and you can just work on whatever you want whatever interests you and find other people if you want and work with them or study with them or anything like that and no money changes hands their whole model is recruiting after the fact if you're interested I would definitely if folks are looking I found it really helpful as a kind of career refocus and figure out what I wanted to do next few months if folks are looking, I would definitely highly recommend it. Interesting. I'll include a, like briefly looked their website up earlier, so I'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes for people. I was just kind of curious about that that model. You know, was your sense that a lot of the people that were part of it were taking a break from work for a while, or were anyone like kind of on a sabbatical from their their job, or is it kind of people that are kind of like more in flux between roles, and I kind of then kind of relate back to that recruiting model. Yeah, so it was a bit of a few things. So you, three months was the longest you could kind of stay there at one point. Uh, they also had one week and six weeks. But it was a bit of all of those, I think. It was some folks who were just out of a boot camp looking for their first role, and this seemed like a good way to build up a little portfolio. It was a lot of folks who were a little burnt out and just wanted to get reinvigorated and, and reinterested. It was some folks who had left one job, but weren't clear, like, I guess, like myself had left one job, but weren't entirely clear on next steps and just wanted a good learning environment. When I was there, someone else there put it really interesting to me in terms of why he was there. He was like, yeah, I just wanted to learn for a few months and saying to everyone like, oh, I'm just spending my days studying is kind of a lot harder than being like, I'm at this center learning with other people. And also it's way more fulfilling to learn with other people I thought that was interesting I think it is it's definitely unique in terms of the atmosphere and the willingness of people to just learn and teach and explore was there anything during that time that you had like some aha moments in there or was it just that you got a wide variety of interesting things to kind of you I'm guessing decided to work on because it wasn't like you were being assigned work it was definitely a bit of both prior to that I had been working on a web app but mainly on kind of back-end non-Rails-y performance stuff around it, but still in Ruby. And then while at the Recurse Center, I was like, hey, I worked a lot on optimizing performance of this app, but I actually realized I don't know what Ruby is doing behind the scenes to optimize performance. And as I started reading and learning and writing about that, um, that was when these other opportunities came into play, like like working at Shopify. And so I think there were some very random things I did though. Actually, one of them was I looked into like how random worked, right? I didn't actually understand that. And I was like, huh, I don't know this. Let me just go figure it out. Or I led a little group that every day we would watch a tech talk and discuss it. And that type of thing was really interesting because different people would bring different tech talks for us to watch each day. There are some of them I still think about, I think weekly probably. Uh, and so just a, a learning atmosphere that I really enjoyed. I think, you know, this kind of all coming back to like the theme of the the podcast more specifically around software, but when you think about maintaining your career, getting a sense that you have these like patterns of like wanting to kind of like, this is kind of interesting and unpacking some things, wanting to understand how things work. I'm admittedly a little different that way. And then I 
care less about how things work, just what I can do with them. And like, I'm glad to know that there's people that really want to go deep into understanding and, and optimize down below. And I want to be like, I want to optimize up on top. Yeah. So it's an interesting balance. I think we all need each other. Do you have any, since this is literally the first podcast recording of the year, and this will get probably published in maybe end of February, March or so. Do you have any predictions for the tech space over the next, say, six months that you're kind of like, or things you're really curious to see kind of how they pan out? I really, really believe in AI's continued growth. Um, and I think not in a faddish way. Like I, I think when crypto was coming up, we, I think most of us were like, this is going to bust at some point or, or not really last. I think I really strongly believe that we're going to see AI and better use cases for it all over the place. I think that's my biggest prediction. It seems like a safe assessment. I think the hard been in the space of trying to like wrap my head around like what can we do for our clients with it versus what can I do for ourselves with it. And I'm like, like for my running a business type of thing, I use ChatGPT to help me think about questions that ask people like you on the podcast. And I like kind of back and forth with that a little bit. And like, I'm coming up with some ideas and like how I can personally use it and professionally use it for my company. But when it's like going in and helping other businesses try to make sense of that themselves, it's like, that's a, cause I work on the consulting side of things. And so it's, it's different. And so I'm kind of like having to kind of sit a little bit on the sidelines being like, yeah, I, it, yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I, um, I'm studying Portuguese and I was using it to help me and I have this website called italki where you can hire a teacher and I showed my teacher like my use case for it which was I'm like for instance I am struggling to understand the difference between poor and para give me 10 quiz questions of each I'm going to answer them and give it back to me and I just will interact with chat GPT like this for 20-30 minutes at a time and I showed that to my teacher and he was like oh my god I can create all these lesson plans out of this I can do the whole and he was like yeah it's I think it's just think yeah thinking about ways people might not be thinking of interacting with it I feel like there needs to be more conversations amongst ourselves on like what are our prompts that we're experimenting with and you know like and giving yeah 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 or ways to share them I think potentially we have a, on my team a, like a show and tell every week and I tried to have an AI focused one of like how are people actually using these tools but I think it's hard for folks to share. I would almost be curious to read someone's like ChatGPT or Claude or whatever questions like to just read their conversations and see what what things people are thinking about. Kind of like a gist for like a GitHub gist for for a specific ChatGPT prompt. I I think there might be a way to share them now. I don't remember. I feel like yeah, you can share. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on Pro, I think you can. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you have predictions for the next six months? Oh, don't turn the question back around on me. Um, <laughs> one thing that I'm kind of curious about is I feel like there's an interesting, I think with all the layoffs that happened over the last year plus that's been going on in the industry, that teams have had to figure out how to become a little, you know, when they're lean, try to like rethink some of the infrastructure stuff that they've been putting together. And so I'm kind of curious how infrastructure is going to, like management, like code, stuff like around that space is going to shift around or like, because I work in the consulting space. I know at least in the Ruby and Ruby on Rails community, there's a lot of small teams at the moment that might've been a little bit bigger that are now kind of stuck managing they're kind of in this weird situation where they don't know that they're going to grow quickly again but they've invested a lot in infrastructure and coding code basic arc um, infrastructure things like terraform stuff like that but if you're a team of two or three people and you've got like 
10 microservices and things like that. I think there's an interesting thing where people are either need to figure out like, are we spending a lot of time and money on maintaining these things that only a small group of people kind of know a little bit about or how do we kind of rein that back in again or could we be doing, how do we redo, rethink this? Because I think a lot of trends over the last, say, five years before that, five, 10 years, whereas we're, we're all trying to rapidly scale. So let's use this, these technologies to help us but now we're like, we don't necessarily have, we didn't actually reach that scale. And you've kind of like, you're still in this situation where I think infrastructure costs are probably a lot higher than companies would like them to be. And there's a lot of developers being like, I don't really know that I feel confident that I could shut some of this stuff down or. That's interesting. Do you see hiring picking up at all or not quite? Admittedly, no, not that much. Um, I mean, it's not that it's not happening. I definitely know that the there's still like hiring junior developers still seems to be lagging pretty slowly. And I've talked with some people that running some of the code schools and stuff like that. And that's like their biggest concern is like, well, if, if they know that if students like they need to bring more students in, but if the students are finding jobs and they hear those stories and they're like, so it's kind of like having a, a impact kind of down the pipeline there a little bit and where I remember 12 years, 10, 12 years ago, there was a huge, there was a problem where if you knew how to program in Ruby or Ruby on Rails, like you were quick to get hired. And we basically had a talent shortage. And so all these schools popped up, you know, and now we have like an abundance of junior developers that have kind of, and it's an interesting kind of counterbalance now. And so I think that's, I hope it picks up more in the next six months, but I don't know how to read the tea leaves there. So, all right. So I got a couple of quick last questions for you, Gemma. One, is there a non-software, non-code, non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers, professional peers, more often than not? Yeah, one book I I really enjoy is um, Thinking Fast and Slow. As someone who I think thinks slowly sometimes, I think it's a really good book about sort of cog psychology and how we think um, and kind of more deliberate, logical thinking and where the place can be for that and, and how to think about that. Do you... Consider yourself a slow thinker. Is that a, you feel like it's a superpower for you or is it something that you struggle with a little bit? I think it, uh, like most things, it, it's sometimes one, sometimes the other. I think this is maybe relatable to many listeners, but there are often times where I reflect on a conversation and wish I had said something else. I think in those cases, it feels like less of a superpower, but I think when I've been sitting with a problem for a while and only then do I think of something, I think then it feels really, really powerful. That's interesting. So yeah, I was kind of curious about people's capacity to, do you feel like it's more on just thinking through a thought or like making some sort of decision on something? Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting distinction. I think thinking through a thought or evolving a thought. I think decisions usually when I make, I don't really look back. I make a decision and then I'm on to the next. But I think a new way to connect things or a new way to think about things or something like that usually takes me days, weeks, months of runs and walks and a lot of idle thinking time. And I think many other people seem to do it much more immediately or like in a podcast conversation or stuff like that, right? Like sometimes I'll listen to podcasts and be like, that was so articulate and smart. I can't think on the spot about things like that. I need a little more time to process. I know how to fill the air when I talk for sure. But the you know, it's interesting because <laughs> uh, when I'm interviewing different people for the podcast, it, you know, there's some people and it's like, how, how do you come up with these words so quick? Like, like what? what is your operating system in your head? Like, how do I get that? How do you articulate that so well so quickly? And I'm always a little, right. very impressed by that. But I also maybe just being quick to respond isn't necessarily that it's the best way to, to be a person on the planet and be a participant in society. So that's okay. I'm not going to overthink it and beat myself up about it anymore. But 
I should pick up this book. So Thinking Fast and Slow, I will include a link to that. And, and where can listeners best follow your thoughts online and about software development and maybe running? I don't, I don't really write anything about running, but software development, probably I have a blog and I keep it pretty up to date with talks and things like that at just at Gemma.dev. So feel free to check that out for sure. Excellent. I'll include links to that for everybody in the show notes, Gemma.dev. And with that, Gemma, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable. Thank you for stopping by to talk shop. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I really enjoyed it too. Enjoy your run in the rain tomorrow. <laughs> Will do. You too.